0: You're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nydell. Let's go back in time when turtles roamed the sewers
1: of New York. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. And knowing was half the battle. It's time for Saturday Morning Rewind. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year's, first of all, thank you so much for tuning in. Before I start the show, I need to give a huge thanks once again to my good friend Larry Kenny for that amazing intro that you just heard. Of course, a lot of you may know Larry Kenny as the original voice of Lion-O from the 1980s cartoon, Thundercats.
0: Your fate will be sealed by the symbol you betrayed, Groon, the Eye of Thundera. Ho!
1: So it's pretty awesome that he's able to take some time and do that for us, because I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Thundercats. You guys are in for a big treat for this episode. Billy West will be joining me. Of course you all know him from fifty percent of the cast members in Futurama. Let's see he does Fry.
2: Shut up and take my money.
1: He does the Professor?
2: No 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 not in any sense of the word but essentially yes. Entirely.
1: He does Zoidberg.
0: Hello
1: you! He Brannigan.
0: <laughs> uh, oh that's rich.
1: And you know, a ton of other voices on the show. He's also the voice of Stimpy and later on Ren from Ren and Stimpy. Uh
2: they're not real and uh they'll they'll ruin your mind.
1: The uh, and
0: uh Oh yeah! They're really only puppets!
1: Doug Funny on Doug.
0: Patty, you the pickle on my coleslaw. Patty, you the sugar in my tea.
1: Patty, you the relish on my hot dog. And Patty, you're the mayonnaise for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He did Bugs Bunny in Space Jam and a couple other things. Oh, uh, look out for that voice step-dog. It's a real Lulu. He's also the voice of the red M&M from all those commercials. I don't know. I never met the guy. In the interview you're about to hear, you can hear us talk all about Futurama. And even a possibility of it coming back, maybe. You'll find out. Uh, We'll talk about Ren and Stimpy, Mel Blanc, the Beach Boys. and I mean, it's endless. It's an amazing interview, about 45 minutes long. I love it. You're going to love it too, hopefully. But before I go into it, I am doing a giveaway for this episode. I am giving away a Blu-ray copy of Futurama into the wild green yonder. And also a Futurama keychain. It's a little fry keychain. It's so cool looking. All you need to do is go to my website at hitrockbottom.org slash SaturdayMorningRewind.html There's a little form on the left-hand side. Fill that out. And put in the secret word fry. The contest is going to run to the end of the month. I will notify the winner via email on February 1st. Also, while you're there, remember to click on the links. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a positive feedback. So thanks guys, thanks for tuning in. Hope you had a great Christmas and hope you have a great year this year. And I hope you enjoy my time with Billy West. Okay, so let's start from the way, way, way beginning. What kind of a kid were you?
2: I was like an alien.
1: <laughs> That's what I thought.
2: No, I mean, I was like a little alien. <laughs> um, you know, I just, uh, I couldn't fi- figure people out you know, because I, I kind of, I was an isolated kid. I isolated myself because I had a horrifying childhood, uh, mostly in my own house, uh. by my dad, who was a psycho and, uh, you know, drunk, abusive. And, uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what to make of anything. All I know is I couldn't trust anybody, you know, because I would, I, it would, it would be like a betrayal if I, if I actually believed in somebody or, because a lot of people, you know, would just do that stuff to you. Kids, especially. And so I lived in my own little world. I created my own world. I mean, I, I used to just, Wherever I was standing or sitting, I was a million miles away from that physical spot. Mm-hmm. And, um, living on my own planet. And I had characters and giving voice to all kinds of stuff, like, um, you know, little action figures. But there was no such thing. There we were little green army men. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and maybe, maybe something else. Uh, but not much of anything, and I used to just give them all voices, and yeah, you know, I was just like a really weird kid. I, I was. Um, I used to walk around the house with a mirror under one eye, <laughs> and so I could look down at that and see me walking on the ceiling.
1: That's interesting, huh?
2: Yeah, except you <laughs> don't see your feet, you don't see anything, but you can walk through solid objects, and wow, you know if you. If you hold it to the side of one eye and and just aim it towards the wall as uh-huh. you're walking down the corridor, uh, you can make it makes the wall seem like it's right in front of you, like <laughs> you're wa- you're wading through it like chest deep.
0: <laughs> wow!
2: And that's what it looks like, and that's what it feels like. So I was into virtual reality.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, reality just blew for me.
1: Well, I didn't mean to go to a, such a dark topic right away.
2: <laughs> uh no no I mean it's. It all comes from somewhere. Yeah. Whatever it is that's uh, that set you aside.
1: And you know, if that didn't happen to you as a kid, who know you? Who knows where you'd be right now? You know, maybe you'd probably be a manager of Burger King or something.
2: Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I—I I mean, I was just—I uh, was never marching to the beat of any particular drummer. I, I had no use for academia. I couldn't understand why I had to go to school. You know, all I wanted to do was lay on my roof of the house because it was far up above the street and very isolated.
1: Did you have any favorite cartoons growing up?
2: Oh, sure, of course. That was The Greatest Escape. Oh, yeah, definitely. I loved all the Warner Brothers cartoons, but they had lousy prints of former lousy prints of those (laughs) cartoons. There weren't clean versions of them like there is now. Yeah. I mean, we were watching Proton, you know, just moving around the screen. <laughs> the quality was so terrifying. But I did hear all these voices, and that's what blew my mind. And I used to see names in the credits, and I'd hear like 10 voices, and I'd see one name. Or on other cartoons, like Hanna-Barbera, I'd see two names. Mm-hmm. And it just always struck me as uh, this needs to be investigated. This <laughs> needs to be checked out, yeah. And that always just held a, a, a high appeal to me. I was a musician. You know, when I was 10, I was playing trumpet and uh, in the school band. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we had a guitar at my house in 1961. We had one tucked away in the cellar. And I used to plunk around on that. But uh, life was no fun.
1: No, when did you, you know, it
2: Never got better. It was getting worse and my mom had to take me and my other two brothers away from Boston. I mean, excuse me, away from Detroit to move to Boston. And that's where I grew up.
1: Now, when did you start dabbling in um impersonations?
2: Um I always kind of did that, you know? I mean, like uh it was a natural thing. For me to just Tourette out stuff, you know, cause when I was a little kid, they said I was always Tourette out noises and trying to make noise on something like I, if I was playing the piano, people would close the lid and go, can you not do that? You know, I was just, I was bursting to express myself in the worst way. That's, that's what, that's what made me like the kind of person I was. All I wanted to do was just try to invent something and get it out there. And now when I was a musician in bands, I had my first band in 1966. And um, later on down the line in the 70s, um, you know, I played like kind of like fantasized rock and roll, like almost glitter band stuff in the 70s, mm-hmm. like Bowie and all of them guys. And uh, let's see. And then after that, I just started, you know, if I broke a string or we blew up an amp or something in the old days, you didn't have anybody to rush across the stage like in a combat, you know, Mm -hmm. hit the dirt, you know, fixing your stuff while you're trying to play. We didn't have that. And, um, you know, so I used to stand on stage and stall around for time. And one way I would do it was I would just start doing voices and (laughs) making noises.
1: How often do people, like, throw out names for you to try to impersonate? Is that pretty often?
2: Um, I uh well I mean for a job I'll always you know, aim as high as I can like if they say, Well we need you know, we gotta use uh you know, Bill Clinton in this particular scene or what and we want you to do it, you know. I mean I'll make it my 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 uh I don't know unflagging goal (laughs) to do the the best or spot on. Sometimes I mean spot on impressions are boring yeah you know sometimes you got to play with them a little to give them just something new and i'm always dying to bring something to the table (laughs) i never knew you could be famous i never dreamt that you could make any money doing this it just kind of chose me and grabbed me and i went along with it (laughs) but uh when i was out of bands i i was trying to do stand-up comedy in boston and it didn't work out too well until i opened my mouth and started doing voices and that kind of held everybody at day and they'd be like, wow. Um, when I was trying to be funny, I never was. I was like, uh, inadvertently or I don't know, just natural without thinking mm-hmm. about it. I could be funny. And I get into radio in 1980. Yeah. 1980 in Boston. And I used to work on the morning show. It was called the big mattress and it had, uh, a guy, a uh, FM guy, morning guy called Charles Laquadera. and uh, he kind of encouraged, like, go crazy, you know, kind of stuff. Like I was working in production, I could go back there. It was like a, it was like a playground, you know, because I could go back there and, and and just do write anything I wanted and record it and edit it. And uh, now they don't do that anymore. You got to have, you know got good skill on the computer, but back then it was grease pencils, oxide reel-to-reel tape, mm-hmm. and, and a straight-edge razor and a cutting board, <laughs> you know, where you could edit, you had to edit your own stuff and tape it. I mean, put a piece of tape over the edit that you made.
0: Uh-huh, yep.
2: I mean, it was very painstaking, but I learned it, um because if I wanted to have, a, like, a job there as a producer, I had to learn how to do that. Plus, do the, the morning show. Like, I would come in every day with an idea, and I'd just make it happen before, like,
1: 8.30. Let's talk real quick about one of my favorites of all time, Ren and Stimpy. How did you get involved with Ren and Stimpy?
2: I was doing a show. I, I was hired to do the 1988 revival of Feeney and Cecil.
0: Okay, I remember that.
2: For, ABC television. They wanted to just redo it, you know, and they got the animator John Chris Feluci uh, who he got a lot of me on the show when I was doing Seesaw and you know, he heard some other stuff I did and um they blew up the show. ABC just pulled the plug after like five episodes. You know, was in fighting uh with John. Uh, over scenes that were approved and then changed, you know, there's there's a million stories on this stuff. Uh-huh. But uh, but anyway, that was it. You know, they just threw us out the door. Um, and then he came back and hunted me down to do um, a pilot, do some voices for a pilot, and. Uh, it was the original Ren and Stimpy pilot and it was gonna be played in theaters in those cartoon film festivals.
0: Oh, okay.
2: I remember I had like one line in it. Uh, actually, let's see. I think yeah, I think it was one line as Stimpy. And I had no idea what the characters were when they when he sent me these cells of them, the animation cells of them. I didn't know what they were. They just looked so <laughs> strange. I thought what is this this what are they, microbes, or <laughs> they insects, or mm-hmm. strange-looking, you know, and uh, I thought it was beautiful. And originally, I uh, was called to do both parts. Yeah. Um, what I did is Wren sold the show to the women at Nickelodeon and Stimpy, of course, but um, after the fact, John decided he was going to do Wren, but... Originally, I was hired to do it, and actually wound up doing it after John got fired from Nick. And, you know, um, I loved doing it when I was doing it. And then um, I was being attacked, you know, because I wouldn't do the new one, the revival.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: And I knew exactly what they were going to do with it and everything, and I passed. Because it totally, like, betrayed all the conceits and premises of the show. You know, and uh, it's an experiment that they thought would, you know, be really funny and creative and everything. But it, you know, it wasn't at the light. You know, at the end of the day, it wasn't worth a pitcher of warm spit. <laughs> from what I gather, uh-huh. I mean, I've only seen like a couple of them.
1: You know, I don't think I've seen uh, a single one of the new ones either. No, it, it didn't really. It you like know, a like non-entity. a
2: non-entity.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up on Red and Stimpy. I just, it just didn't appeal to me to watch anything mm-hmm.
2: new. Yeah, I mean. You know what it is? It's too much freedom they had. Yeah. When they were going to do that. Oh, we can put arms on the Venus to Milo? What are we waiting for? (laughs) And uh, that's what it was like. It's like we're going to throw in every, you know, uh, every little thing we've always wanted to do in cartoons. They started becoming cries for help, (laughs) you know, rather than animated cartoons. Uh Uh-huh. That's just my feeling.
1: Can I, can I hear a little bit of Stimpy?
2: Hey, man, are you getting me? you shut up you fellow. Yes, I shall kill you.
1: That's awesome, man. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I posted on Facebook and Twitter that I was, was going to talk to you today, it, it blew up. I mean, everybody was so, you know, happy that you're going to be on the show and everything. But I do have one friend and one listener that wanted a shout-out. Do you think that's going to be possible? Her name is Anna Marine. She wanted a shout out as fry. She loves fry.
2: Anna Marine. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um okay. Greetings from the year 3000. It still sucks. But I'm happy enough to give a shout out today to Anna
1: Marine. She is going to love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, so let's let's get into it. Let's get into some futurama. Mm-hmm. And I, I can tell you know you don't change your voice too much for Fry, which is was that you know, a strategy thing? Did you do that? Yes, one? it was.
2: was I, it? <laughs> I, I sounded like that when I was 25. I remember I was very whiny and complaining all uh-huh. the time. You know, I broke a string. Now what am I to do? <laughs> you know, I just I sounded just like that, and um, and I decided to do it because he was a real character. The rest of them were a little overboard, you know. As characters, they were they were played a little big, and I think I gave them enough for like an impressionist to grab onto, you know. Yeah. Like, if they had trouble with me or things weren't working out, they could always find somebody to do impersonations of that stuff.
1: Or maybe but, can't. Or maybe cancel but, the show twice, you know. Try to get rid of you.
2: Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> Just don't take a hint, do you? No. Now, you know what it is, is I was entrusted to create voices for them, and, and I did. And I tried to make them all very unique or different. And um, and Philip J. Fry, 25-year-old pizza delivery boy, uh, I just said, I'm going to do my own like voice when I was 25, because cause it's very hard to imitate somebody's real voice. Yeah, it is. You know, and so I amped it up a little. Man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. That's that's how it sounded, and, and he was a perfect everyman. You know, he tried to be smartassy, but everybody knew better. And, um, you know, his, his so many things he understood on a heart level, but but a lot of his comprehension, like through the brain level, was off. You know, it's made him very endearing. You know, he had one aim was to, to get with Leela.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, he didn't have to deliver pizza anymore. Mm-hmm. He had to deliver, you know, dangerous stuff to other planets, dangerous planets. And, uh, but all he wanted was what, what you saw at the end in the finale.
1: It was a, a great, great run. I, I loved that show.
2: Oh, so did I. It was my favorite show. Whether I had anything to do with it or not. Yeah.
1: It had great writing, I mean, great cast. It was amazing. Oh,
2: yeah. Even if I had nothing to do with that show, I would have loved it because of the writing and the you know, the style I was familiar with the you know, the Simpsons and Yeah, yeah. This was a little way different. But you know, I mean I absolutely loved it. I thought that was the best thing I ever did. Plus I got to have nothing but fun with like, you know, Zap Ranigan and, and uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Dr.
2: Zoidberg.
1: <laughs> Zoidberg's my favorite Master actually
2: Barnesworth, yeah. I, I mean I just had so much fun doing them always, so much fun. And uh, and doing Nixon and, and other stuff.
1: What is it, like 52 voices you've done on that show?
2: I don't know. Could
1: that be possible? I, I think that's what I saw, I think. Really? I, I think you were the second most heard voice on the show. I think Tress McNeil was number one. Uh-huh. And you were second, but you had the most lead characters over Tress. Yes. So that's just impressive. It's crazy.
2: I mean, I just, it was like I never looked back. I just, whenever it was, I had a chance to work, I would work like crazy.
1: Yeah. What was it like uh, working with Matt Groening?
2: Uh I think it was like, it was a really, really great experience. Um, he maintains balance at high speed. You know, he's one of those guys that seems to be able to do that. I mean, I... I found him really great as a person, but as a, as a visionary or, um, as an artist, you know, I mean, my hat's off. I got artists are my bros. You know, I used to draw and then I just wasn't that good. So I started playing music, mm. but the whole art thing, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm into creating, uh, art or being part of the creation of it holds the most appeal to me. Yeah. But I loved working with him. He was just so he's so thankful, always, you know, thanks for, for doing this. He did a great job for us.
1: Now, is he hands-on when it comes to your guys' voices, or does he let you just go off and do your own thing?
2: I came in and auditioned for uh, a few lead characters, but not Zap Flanagan. Yeah. Um, I auditioned for Bender. And I wound up getting, like, four lead roles, or three, actually, in the beginning, and then they added Zapp.
1: Wasn't Phil Hartman attached to it first, before you were? Well,
2: I think they had him in mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could, it's
2: obvious. Zapp Brannigan, and I met Phil Hartman. He was very, very nice to me. He called me at my house in New York,
0: huh.
2: and I wasn't home, and my wife said, You know who just called here? Phil Hartman. I go, Do you know how many guys I know that could pull an elaborate prank <laughs> like that on you? he said no 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 it was him and he left his number he just wanted to say how much he appreciates your work
1: that's amazing I called
2: him up I said I kind of know who you are too you know (laughs) but I mean I loved the guy and we did have a lot of commonalities like our love of big dumb announcers okay from the old days yeah radio guys and old TV guys big poppers you know I used to call them big dumb announcers (laughs) and then I'm Species came along after that and wiped them out. They were like raptors. They were more facile. They were quicker. They were called little dumb announcers.
1: <laughs> now, when you would record between characters, you voiced, what, for the lead? Would you do them all separately, or would you ever combine them into a conversation?
2: Um, I would do... Line after line, if there was six pages of dialogue and it was all me, I'd go through it as both characters.
0: Okay.
2: Or three or four characters, I'd go through it just once and talk to myself, and then they could edit.
1: Yeah, any any pauses like, or any, anything weird, yeah.
2: Yeah, anything that's just not, doesn't sound, uh, something that's not jarring. I mean, they edited it, it's like a cartoon where... They record the voices first. I didn't mean that. I mean uh, animation. They record voices first, and then they animate to that. A lot of people think it's the other way around.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: But uh, the process is very fascinating, and I think uh, I think it's something a lot of people that are looking for a career should look into. You know, animation. They're doing nothing but.
1: Yeah, something. I actually was going to college for an art major to become an animator, but just life got in the way and just, you know, I dropped out of college and never went back. That's one thing. Yeah, I, I
2: didn't go to college. I couldn't wait to get out of high school.
0: <laughs> I almost
2: quit school so I could be in a band full time and uh-huh. get on the road, go on the road, yeah. But then I, I did a semester at, at uh, Berkeley School of Music. It is now a college, an accredited college. It wasn't when I went. I only stayed there for like a semester, because I didn't want to learn about music. I wanted to be playing. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. It's not the same thing.
2: Yeah, and I just got out there, and I played, and, you know, took all the hard knocks that come with that world, including drugs and alcohol.
1: (laughs) You have to. It's part of it.
2: Well, I was lost in that, you know. I was, like, dangerously close to uh, to checking out a few times, Hmm. quite a few times.
0: What
1: brought, you, what brought you back to reality when you would do that? Um,
2: the radio station that I worked at was just so tired of my antics at the station. I was like a menace. You know, my work was great, but I wasn't so great. Yeah. Like, as a person. Yeah. And they were adamant that I'd get uh, treatment. And in those days, this was the beginning of, um, your your job would pay. Like, if you had to go to a, a clinic to get sober and relearn how to live life, you know, after seven at night without being drunk or high on coke, stuff like that. Um, You know, you really do got to relearn a lot of life that you missed because you're smashed or, or, you know, wired. And uh, I got it. It took five weeks, I think, of inpatient. They used to do it that way. Now they don't even do
0: that. No, they don't
2: they'll have somebody, you know, outpatient for a week. Yeah. And that's, I don't know if that's effective. I never went back. I'm a quick study. I got it the first
1: time <laughs> around. Now, since we're off talking about, you know, your musical career, you've done one thing in your life that I am so jealous of. I'm a huge Beach Boys fan.
2: Oh, yeah. And you
1: played with Brian Wilson. What was that like?
2: Oh, I, I, it's hard to explain, but I got to <laughs> tell you, in the winter of, uh, I think it was 1964. I had the single "Wouldn't It Be Nice,"
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I used to play it over oh, yeah. and oh, over yeah. and over again, wearing out the grooves. And I would listen to parts of the song. You know, it seems the more we talk about it, mm-hmm. um, it's it, it, like the more we. Let's see, it seems the more we talk about it, um, something. We can't live without it. Wouldn't it be nice about being, you know, married? Um, but the, in that part, it's like it seems the more really we talk about it. There's a mandolin strumming in the background, and it's so romantic that it it used to evoke quite a feeling in me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, because I was very sensitive to all the parts in an orchestra, all the parts in a in a song, all the. Ins- Instrumentation, you know, I just could know what it was. I knew it. I could hear every note separately when they sang harmonies. I knew how to, I knew, I understood harmonic construction very early because of Brian Wilson. So, years and years later, a friend of mine from Boston, he was a music producer and he was in band, named Andy Paley, was working on Brian's first solo record. And before they started doing that, he calls me out of the blue and he says, um, Brian's playing tonight down in Santa Monica. And I said, you're kidding me? i got to see him. He said, no, I want you to come and play. <laughs> and so we were, it was like we were thrown together. At the last minute, it was me and Elliot Easton from the Cars.
0: Wow.
2: He was the lead guitar player, and I knew him in Boston. But here we are standing on stage with Brian Wilson singing 409. And-
1: <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah, I'm a little teapot.
1: <laughs> we did it. Did you?
2: We'd come out and I'm a little teapot, short and stout. <laughs> this is my handle. Oh, this is my spouse. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I was on stage with the guy that wrote the soundtrack to my friggin' young adult life. And uh, it was like a pinch me thing. Uh-huh. We didn't know what to do. It was like me and Elliot Easton were. We didn't know whether to should or go blind, as they say. Because it was just very hard to believe where we were. And it was like, whose dream is this, you know? Yeah. Do I pinch you or do you pinch me? <laughs> and then I got called to do a series of gigs cause he, because he was promoting the Don Was movie I Wasn't Made for These Times, which was my all-time favorite Beach Boys song because I was always in a very dark place. Yeah years ago and that song just it 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 hit me in so many places it rearranged me and uh i said you know i i hardly had any feelings at the time because i was so drugged out and drunk but but even like dark feelings were better than no feeling
0: yeah
1: exactly
2: and so stuff like that used to i don't know it was like it was like looking at art or listening to art, but it, but it was like black velvet. You know what I mean? The mm-hmm. colors weren't quite right. Yeah. Was on a black background or, a, you know, like a gasoline rainbow. And that's what those songs were like to me. You know, that there was this extreme beauty and profoundness, you know, in all of his stuff. And uh, all he was doing was his, his greatest sin was he was ahead of his time and nobody oh, yeah. could keep up with oh, him. Yeah. I don't know, when I heard of all the things that he went through, I I kind of suffered along with him. I know it sounds crazy, but to hear that he experimented himself out of the game at 25 years old on LSD, he just knocked himself out of the game. And then managed to come back and finish a record that should have been released 48 years ago. Oh my
1: god, yes, that's an incredible record, too. And
2: when I Heard Smile, and I said, oh, my God, he has the real band he deserves. Uh-huh. These people are so great. You know, this was after I played with them. We were doing, like, a small combo, uh, playing at different venues just to promote the movie. Played at Lincoln Center. Paul Schaefer played with us. Wow. Yeah, it, it was so exciting. There's almost, like, no words that can describe.
1: that <laughs> um, for a moment in time, you were a beach boy, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can always say that, and and it was like, you know, he was one of my great heroes, but I have all different types of heroes, like in comedy, I loved, uh, the guy that gave me the spark was a guy named Sid Caesar, from years back, mm-hmm. he had a, sh- a show called Your Show of Shows, and that was in the 50s, and my mom let me stay up and watch this crazy guy on TV, we used to sit there and watch him, this was back in the 50s. And um, the guy, he was tragic, and he was comic, and, and I, I just got locked into what he was doing. Uh, also, it was one of the first televised images I had ever seen of anything. And for most people, they hadn't seen much television. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were lucky to have one for a little while. But those guys, Jonathan Winters, they gave me the sparks, and the voice people were Mel Blank, Daws Butler, Don Messick, June Foray. You know, Dayton Allen. I mean, there's a million names I could rattle off that were influences, and um, I never thought I would ever be in a you know a, a collection of names as those people, and I wound up to be, and I just I couldn't believe it half the time. I consider myself so fortunate, but I was a young buck when I went to Boston. I mean, not Boston, New York when I was going to go do the Stern show, and I was ready to take on the world. I was like a Terminator. I had <laughs> so much energy, and and I wanted to put a dent in the place so bad. And they said, so what do you think you're going to do? I said, I want to be flavor of the month 12 times a year. Anybody got a problem <laughs> with that?
0: <laughs>
2: I, I had whipped myself into a frenzy, like I wasn't going to take no for an answer mm-hmm. ever again. You know, that's kind of... It alienates certain people, but once you suddenly become famous, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy, and they want it, they, they describe you fondly. And it's like, no, I'll tell the truth for you. I used to argue, like, in commercials, I would actually challenge the director when they'd say, no, we want a disc jockey. You know, hey, everybody, and I said, I don't know any disc jockeys. I've been in radio for 10 years. I don't know any disc jockeys that sound like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I went along with it because it's the perception that kids had.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm a
2: disc jockey. But it was like, it was like Tootsie, you know, where, uh, what's his name? Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman is arguing with the director. You know, a tomato wouldn't sound like that.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, that kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. where I was at. I was a weird guy. I mean, I just heard things differently, and I wanted to do them differently.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I, I wanted to break rules. I was really not afraid of anything, to, t- to tell you the truth. I was fearless.
1: Well, that's good. It would probably cost you some jobs, but you got, it got you the important ones, I'm sure.
2: That's true. But I was always nice to everybody, always. And I'm so shocked. One time I got a call out of the blue. A producer wanted to hire me for a gig. And I get there, and I don't remember auditioning. And I said, I don't remember auditioning <laughs> for this. He said, no, I, I hired you. I said, well, thanks. And he said, years ago, you probably don't remember me, but you were at Super Duper Studios on Madison Avenue. And it was, um, you know, commercial house. And I was the guy one day that got you coffee. And you didn't want me to go get it. You said, you could get it. And you said, no, no, come on, I'll get it. You know, and I said, was I nice to you? And he goes, oh, yeah, you were so cool. And, uh, you know, that's how I treated everybody always.
1: So, so what what's next for you? I mean, is there a chance Futurama might have some kind of spinoff or direct to well, DVD? Well, let's take
2: it from this angle. I think it's too good to not be on television. Yeah. I really do. I agree. And um, I think something may happen with it. Um, I wouldn't count it out because I've been surprised so many times. Oh, yeah. And... Um, You know, it's always gonna hold that place in my heart and those episodes will be around forever. They'll outlast me, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. I I just whether it's done or it isn't done, I I feel so proud that we did what we did. I think it uh, it made a difference. In the meantime I'm still doing like all the M and M's commercials. Oh
1: yeah, that's right. That's awesome. They keep
2: me busy. And (laughs) I also do a lot of gigs that are one offs you know, where they just call you and stick you in with a, a bunch of voice actors for some cartoon that I'm not a regular on. You know, there's a lot of that. Uh-huh. But um, I am doing <clears throat> a kid's cartoon for Disney. And, you know, I was always like, ugh, kid's stuff, you know. It's never funny. Yeah. You know, and I read the script of this new program, a new show they were going to do called The 7D, which is... Um, I guess it's hip for uh, The Seven Dwarves. Okay. Hip Talk, 7 D, Mickey D's, <laughs> that kind of stuff. I think it's hilarious. The show is so well-written. It's a lot of the Tiny Toons people. Oh, and, nice. Uh, and Pinky and the Brain and Animaniac. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the older Tom Ruger. Oh, man. Is producing and directing. And, you know, we've got writers like Sherry Stoner and... I mean, those were the names you used to see on all those cool Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's just nothing but fun, and and I'm working with the greatest bunch of voice people. You know, I couldn't have picked, like, a better fantasy cast, and they're all people that I hold in such high esteem. And I actually still learn from. I mean, I go to school all the time. <laughs> I'm not afraid to, to watch somebody that's on all eight cylinders no, sure. I mean, functioning.
1: You worked with Frank Welker on Futurama. I'm sure you he taught you a couple things.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, but he's Frank to me, in my mind, he was always in a class of his own. You know, he had control over every chamber in his body
0: <laughs>
2: to make sound with. And and it is wondrous. It's almost like magic, you know. And and you want to believe that somebody could have magic.
1: You know, it's funny. We were watching a movie just about an hour ago. I was watching it with my daughter. She's nine. There was like a dragonfly on there. My daughter yeah. turned around and said, Is that Frank Welker?
0: Oh, <laughs> really? Yes.
1: I mean, I've taught her all about Frank and everybody else. Oh, yeah.
0: Very uh, <laughs> astute. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: To She'd, say the least. She's, she's picking up quite a few people. I mean, she can pick out Jim Cummings now and... You know Frank and and Rob Paulson and those people. So uh. she's she's growing up, you know, on the classics and all the classic, you know, voiceover people. And I'm I'm proud of her. Wow,
2: that's really great.
1: All right, Billy. Well, I thank well, you. Well, if
2: you have any more questions, um,
0: um, let's see. I, think, I I'm, think
2: I'm trying to think of anything else that I've been working on. Oh, I'm working on a lot of my own projects. Oh yeah. Yeah, which I can't talk about yet because I <laughs> got to have course. one of them happen at least. Some of the, some are cartoons, one's live action, and I'm working on a, uh, a kid's show that could be on Nickelodeon very easily and uh, hope to make it into a stage show. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I still have the same kind of energy I always had. And, you know, I go out the door just saying, you know, today might be the greatest day of my life. And <laughs> I, I say that every day. And they usually are the greatest days there you of my go. life. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I kind of have that outlook. Like every day is a new chance to, to do something cool. I don't intend I'm going anywhere. I'm 62 now. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, I mean, I can...
1: You can eat off the senior You at Denny's now.
2: You're right. Or, or actually retire.
1: Yeah, come on.
2: No, I mean, that's ridiculous. I don't want to ever do that. I want to do this when I'm 80, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just, it doesn't leave you just because you're a certain age.
1: I mean, look at Frank, oh. you
2: know? Oh, I know, I know.
1: June Foray, yeah. you know, all those classic voices. They, they're not giving up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I worked with June so many times, and she was one of my idols. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've worked with a few of the people I idolized, and I did meet Mel Blanc
1: oh, in my nice. lifetime. What was that what was that meeting like?
2: Oh, it was crazy. Just going to see him. Um, I just happened to catch it in the local paper. Nobody made any big deal about it, but he's gonna give a voice and slideshow at this old university in Worcester, Massachusetts called Clark University. I conned somebody into giving me a ride out there. And there he was. Just came out on stage and started doing stuff and I was I was riveted. I was just so captivated by what this guy could do and all the things that I've ever heard him do. And uh, he showed a clip from an old cartoon, and uh, it was beautiful. And I remember at the end of his little presentation, he said, Now, if there's anybody, anybody that wants to come up here and get an autograph you know, uh, just make a line over here. And I was body slamming kids. I was chucking them into the boards, you know, just because I could get over to the guy. And he said, could you let the little kids go first? <laughs> I get yelled at by Mel Blank, but no matter. Yeah, but, but, I mean, he wasn't, like, yelling at me. No. I was I was so enthusiastic. You wouldn't believe how I acted. You know, just, like, out of my mind that this was the guy. This is a creator. He didn't mimic voices. He didn't, you know, he could. He could do, like, crazy mimicry, but he wasn't interested in that. He was always very interested in creating, you know, from nothing. And that's what I grew to, to you know, I gravitated towards that approach. Yeah, I, you know, I got tired of doing sound-alike stuff. Because to do Nixon's real voice, I mean, there's just nothing funny about it. Oh, no. Nothing. And so I just, I camped it up very, very much, and then I, for some reason, I had him drift off into suddenly like becoming a werewolf. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I did that. Um, I saw the debate um 1960. It was the first televised presidential deba- debate, and it was John F. Kennedy and Richard M. Nixon. And John F. Kennedy looked, picture perfect you know like a game show host he was camera ready and everything and they kept going to looking at nixon and they did extreme close-ups of him so you could see everything all the chicks and (laughs) you know he was sweating and his beard was coming in it was it began to look like it was getting darker and darker and i said to my mom mom he's gonna turn into a (laughs) werewolf." and uh all my life i thought well if there's ever a chance that i'm I will do that. I know what I'm gonna do with That's it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, i got those companies off the glass. <laughs> and uh, And the writers said, the writers would come to me and say, why, why do you do that? <laughs> why, why do you? And I said, you know, I mean, I'll, and I explained to them why. I said, you don't like it. And they said, no, 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 just keep doing it. <laughs> because it made no sense to anybody, but it was funny
1: that's amazing.
2: Yeah, that was that was just a great example of just taking from real life and I wasn't mimicking Richard M Nixon, he was a pretty dull guy. You know, he was like, and my wife Pat, who was a uh, respectable Republican cloth coat. You know, there was nothing there really, nothing that would excite you, and so I just wanted to run wild with it.
1: Have you ever tried to do Vincent Price? I love his voice.
2: Oh, it Scissorhands. his hands.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love I love Vincent's voice. Now, what about?
2: Um, I also uh, wanted to tell you that um, Nixon. I was drafted by that bastard. Really? Yep. In um... God, what year was it? Seventy-eight. Yeah, I think it was. Maybe before that. Yeah, it was. It was way before that. It was like. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm losing my mind. But but I was drafted.
1: <laughs> so how long did There's you, army did and you they, serve? They would
2: have been, huh?
1: How long did you serve? I mean.
2: Never. Um, I had to go take the physical. Ah. And uh, I tried so hard to muff up the physical. <laughs> screwing myself up. You know. And they all knew there was like 11 doctors of all types. Ear, nose, throat. Yeah. A shrink. Asking me questions like, uh, so you like sports? And I go, nah, not really. Oh, wait, there's one I like, tennis. <laughs> and, and that said to him that I am not a team player. <laughs> I want to be judge and jury. I'm gonna... an executioner.
0: <laughs>
2: and, um, and I got out, but Nixon drafted me, so... Low, these many years later, I got revenge on them. Do you know at the Nixon Library that they, they play my Nixon stuff from Futurama on a continuous
1: loop? Do they really? Yes. Wow. I know. That's crazy. Fuck
2: you. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's. Uh...
1: What about when you do Zoidberg? How do you make it sound like your mouth is like open and you're like drooling and?
2: Well, because I imagined it to be that way after I saw the drawing. You know, he had all this cool meat hanging off his mouth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it would be some sort of an impairment, I would imagine. And then I thought, I loved these peripheral actors. You know, they weren't big stars, but they were in movies, left and right, like Lou Jacobi, uh, Yiddish theater mm-hmm. in the old days. And then he got into movies, and everybody knows him, but they probably don't know his name. But he was the guy in the original Arthur with Dudley Moore.
1: He, oh, okay.
2: He's, he leans over to, you know, Deadly Moore's character, and he goes, what's it like having all that money? <laughs> you know, and I said, that's so endearing and everything, but it needed something. And so I fused him with a guy named George Jessel, who was also a marble mouth
0: mm-hmm.
2: from Vaudeville. He used to tell jokes like, you know the definition of a smart ass? A fellow that can sit on an ice cream cone and tell you what flavor it is. You know, so I can the both of them. And you guys, why not Zoidberg? I'm battling. <laughs>
0: I'm
2: scuttling. Yeah, you know, it's just nothing but fun to do.
1: Oh yeah, when you did um, comic book, the movie with Mark Hamill. When I was watching those scenes at the convention, mm-hmm. did you guys have to do multiple takes because he kept on getting recognized? Because I do not see. You know, it, I'm sure he got recognized left and right. By oh, the-
2: he was. He was, but. With- the thing is, is, you can't you can't base what you're going to do on that stuff. Yeah, that's going to keep happening no matter how you try to stave it off. But um, I don't know. It's pretty funny to do that. I mean, oh, sure. all we did was make up our own
1: <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you and Tom, yeah, you're going to do
2: this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Okay, action. You know, and it was like you were on your own. Yeah, they come up with stuff <laughs> in character, which I thought was beautiful because that's a great challenge.
0: Yeah, I'm sure.
1: And uh, you worked much with Mark previously before that?
2: Not really. I did, well, actually, I did uh, four years of Woody Woodpecker.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: And I played Woody and Wally and got to do a bunch of bunch of other voices, but uh, Mark Hamill played Buzz Buzzard, and it was great, you know, and I, I it was just so much fun doing the sessions and...
1: When you do when you did Woody Woodpecker, did they do they do anything to his voice at all? Do they speed yeah, it up? Yeah, they had to speed it up. That's what I thought. The
2: original, the original one was sped up. Yeah,
1: that's what I thought. A that's
2: lot of I'm the sure. Looney Tunes were sped up too, and people don't realize it. Yeah. Bugs to a degree. Tweety absolutely. Um Sylvester was not tweaked. Um Porky Pig absolutely was. Yeah. And um I did Space Jam, and I just we, we did the voices in real time because I was working with people who could do it. And so I said, all right, man, sign me up. I, I can do that, too.
1: Well, let me hear a little bit of your Bugs, then.
2: Oh, and I got to work with Michael Jordan, Doc. The closest
0: thing to a religious figure that we have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was it like seeing somebody else do Bugs Bunny after you just did and I know Jeff did it before you in, in Tiny Toons, yes. right? So then um, you took...
2: They, and I did it for 10 years. Yeah. And then they shifted it again, but there was another guy named Jeff Burson who did it before I did. Oh. Yeah. So there was a few. And, um, you know, I knew that the gig was mine for one day at a time.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: I was always a day player, and I said, I'm never going to have a sense of entitlement about this, like, you know... What do you mean they're doing a Bugs Bunny commercial without me? You know, I never wanted to be that guy. <laughs> no. I I put it to bed as soon as I left. You know, I didn't. I couldn't lay any claim to any legacy of this stuff. The best work was done before we were born. Period. End of go.
0: sentence.
1: There you go. That's a good way to look at um,
2: it. But it took quite a few guys there for a while to try and replace what Mel Blank did.
1: I mean, you guys were just filling in for God while he's away. You know.
2: Sort of. I know. It kind of felt like that. Well, when I met him, it reminded me of that that uh, painting, you know, where the guys, where God is reaching down yep, from the okay. heavens, and there's some dude on earth with his <laughs> finger pointed upward like a like a lightning rod, uh-huh. and he thinks he didn't get a piece of that magic, you know. <laughs> but there was a differential between their fingers, and I felt that, you know, when I was when I shook hands with him, I was like electrified. I said, "This guy." <laughs> you know that he did something very important even if you didn't know what it was and I've met people like that
1: alright Billy I think that's all I've got
2: oh cool well but I hope this you got everything you need
1: this has been terrific I'm a huge 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 fan of your work oh so, thanks so much um, usually I get people to close the show as my favorite voice but since you've done so many would it be possible to close the show as Fry, Zoidberg and the Professor
2: ok Well, I guess I'm going to go first. Hey, everybody, this is Philip J. Fry. And, uh, um, um, shut up and take my money. Oh, Fry, you're always pushing your way into everything with that quote that everyone loves. Well, I've got a better one. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Shut up, the both of you. It's time to eat. Can't I eat without listening to you two? Now, wait a minute. I get something to say here. This is Zap Brannigan, Master of Time, Space, and everything else in between. And, uh, oh yeah, winner of this year's Modesty Award. And you're listening to, this is Billy West, by the way, Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell.
1: And that's going to conclude this episode of Saturday Morning Rewind. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. All of the links can be found on our website at hitrockbottom.org under the podcast section. Also remember to enter in and win the contest that I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. The contest runs to the end of the month. Thank you so much for listening, and here is a sample of who you're going to hear on the next episode. Oh boy! bun Bunch
0: Does anyone have a glass of milk?
1: Thanks again. I'll see you next time.
0: mistake. You're making the mistake. Flint! Anyone can have an accident, but lying makes it worse. But Mom will be upset. She'll be even more upset if you lie. And how would you feel if Billy got punished? Face up to what you've done. Don't take the easy way out. We'll tell her we did it. Remember, it's better to tell the truth.
1: And that's no lie. Now we know.
0: And knowing is half the battle.
2: You believe you're listening to the Saturday morning rewind, and you believe you believe you that's all, huh?